A play on the play and famous film title On Golden Pond, wherein Jane Fonda brings her son to visit her parents, Catherine Hepburn and Henry Fonda, at their summer home, this episode entails Blanche's grandson coming for a visit while his parents are on a let's repair the marriage vacation. His teenage shenanigans will test the limits of Blanche's kindness and Sophia's patience. The actor playing Billy is a man, well, at the time he was a teen, named Billy Jane, a.k.a. Billy Jacoby. A very fun fact about him, or should I say his family tree, Scott Jacoby, Billy's brother, would go on to play Michael Zbornak, Dorothy's son, in three episodes of The Golden Girls. Billy also starred in the 80s teen classic Just One of the Guys, very problematic. We watched it recently. He was in Cujo. He was a voiceover in The Burbs. He would go on to work on multiple TV shows like Charmed and 21 Jump Street before turning to directing, and he now creates music of his own and with his son. Starting out in the kitchen, Blanche is bringing the dramatics as always, and as always, the body shaming isn't far behind. Blanche's attention-seeking is met with cellulite jokes from Dorothy. Blanche soon recovers from her shock to share that her 14-year-old grandson is needing to come to the house to stay for two weeks, while his parents, Blanche's daughter Janet and her husband Michael, are going to Hawaii for a second honeymoon as they work on their marriage. But of course Blanche isn't upset that her daughter's marriage is in a rough patch. No, she's upset because she's going to have to look over her grandson. And without the help of a governess... A smidge of a maybe of an oh boy comes up when they're at the kitchen table when Dorothy mentions that Cary Grant, the very famous actor from the golden age of movies, is hiding in the broom closet. Cary Grant wasn't gay, but perhaps there were some rumors, or perhaps it's the idea of one of the biggest film stars in the history of the medium hiding in the broom closet, and that's just a silly image. While Blanche hesitates, Sophia lays it out just like she did when Blanche's sister needed a kidney. You do what you need to do for your family. While we haven't heard about this avant, that means before, Dorothy is taking a French class and has a final coming up, yet another aspect that makes the show so inspiring. Some of the ladies have jobs, some are retired, and through the years they all volunteer, take classes to further their own education, and do fundraisers. They're always living and improving their lives for their own sake, not to please a man or meet societal expectations. That's rad. Isn't it though? It's just the best. I was just when you were reading when you were saying that I was thinking like how great it is that like the the best their lives were was when they were all like their forces combined mm-hmm. in the same home. It's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not oh we're old now so we can sit and I'll just knit and yeah. wait to die. They it's all, like yeah. no, now I have free time and yeah. I can kind of live a real housewife's life, but you know for good. Yes. <laughs> yeah, watching porno and eating stuff in the middle of the night. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Please. I can't wait to be 80. From these lips to God's ears. <laughs> Rose reminds Blanche that they are in Florida. There's plenty for them to do with a 14-year-old. Amusement parks, natural sites, Rambo. 
Rose starts to get rosy talking about the movie while Sophia, the porno lover herself, hops in to share that she has seen it twice already and that Sly Stallone's sweat-to-clothing ratio is ideal, which is funny to hear Sophia say as her role on Golden Girls would put her in the running to play Sly's mother in the 1992 film Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. It wasn't exactly a beloved film, but it did earn $70 million at the box office. It wasn't even beloved by the star. When asked about the movies Sylvester Stallone wishes weren't in his catalog, the first one he said was stop or my mom will shoot. With all the crap he's made through the years, the first one you say is the one where you got to work with Estelle Getty? The mom aspect is much more believable in age as Estelle was 23 years Stallone's senior, wherein on Golden Girls, she's actually only older than Rue, hence the terrible wigs and makeup in the first few episodes. I just saw Rambo for the first time in my life. Well, I'm sorry. First Blood. The name of the first Rambo movie is not Rambo. Correct. First Blood. That's right. And then it's Rambo First Blood Part 2, I think. <laughs> but they <laughs> added the Rambo. Rambo. 3. Yeah. And I would I will say I was shocked how much I enjoyed it. Yeah. I my perception of it grow, being born right when they were coming out mm-hmm. was they were just like these machismo blow everything up movies and the first one is like really powerful. I actually cried at the end the way because he's a veteran and the way he talks about his treatment coming home from the war and his own mental health and everything. It was really powerful. And I think it's kind of disregarded for being that because it's Rambo. Oh, yeah. The sequels go go bonkers. But the first <laughs> one is, is a really great uh, adventure and like survival in the woods movie. And yeah. It's really, yeah. Really uh, moving in the end. Yeah. I love I, I love it. Yeah. And, and he's like misunderstood. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I I really misunder misunderstood yeah. the movie before I even saw it. Yeah. And it's filmed in her own backyard. Oh. So that was cool too. Yeah, it's a gorgeous movie. Ooh, so lush. Ooh. <laughs> the greenery. The rainforest. <laughs> mm. Can you believe that's the first movie he said in an interview? Of all your movies, what's one that you would yeah. regret or that you would take back? And he started with that? He has so many. I can't. You have like nine Rambos and you're like, yeah, Estelle Getty. Nah. Yeah. But I think like he really badly wanted to be in comedies, mm. and I think it hurt him extra, extra bad when they were always awful. <laughs> He's oh, just... so he was like trying to transition himself maybe into yeah. comedy, and it was like did, we like... can't take you not serious. Yeah, he made that. <laughs> <laughs> he made that movie Oscar. It was like a musical, I think, oh, and he was a gangster, yeah. and he was always going for it, and just. He's just not funny like that, you know? Mm-hmm. He can be, he's very, he's, as like a writer, he's very funny. I think he's very funny in his delivery. Or he'd be funny as like yeah. a side guy, like the straight man to let somebody bounce off yeah. of. That would be entertaining. That'd be fun. But I think he's a Trumper, so his career can go down the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> I wish Ivan Drago killed him like he killed Apollo Creed. I said it. <laughs> Sophia and Dorothy are the ones that are going to share a room while David is there. I love that this happens throughout the series. I sometimes still have slumber parties with my ma from time to time, but they act like it's such an inconvenience. Guys, stay in Dorothy's room and bring a roll away. Their rooms are mansions. The biggest concern Sophia has is that Dorothy is a snorer. Sophia says, I bet less disgusting noises came out of Ernest Borgnine, who was a prolific actor for over 60 years. He starred in movies, TV shows, and was a game show panelist. If you look him up, you'd recognize him, and you'd probably understand this joke is a bit more, um, 
you know, of a burn on him because he wasn't exactly handsome. Rose excitedly enters to share she's made the same snack for David's arrival as she would make for her own son when he came home from school. A triple-decker BLT, a hearty serving of homemade potato salad, and a slice of double chocolate fudge cake, which would make sense when trying to feed a teenage Viking, as that works out to be about 1,100 calories. Dorothy alludes to the decadence being comparable to a last meal on death row. While one clearly madman requested a single olive for a final meal, I found convicted robber and murderer Thomas Grasso's request to be the closest to that of Rose's afternoon snack. He had... Two dozen steamed mussels, two dozen steamed clams, a double cheeseburger from Burger King, six barbecue spare ribs, two strawberry milkshakes, a half of a pumpkin pie with whipped cream, diced strawberries, and SpaghettiOs. He did get his SpaghettiOs. He didn't get anything else, though. However, he did not get his SpaghettiOs. He was given spaghetti that he felt was too hot, so he spent his last bit of time on Earth sharing with the press his final statement. I did not get my SpaghettiOs. I got spaghetti. I want the press to know this. So with final meal requests, you can request your meal. Oh, yeah. And it depends on the warden and it depends on the prison and it depends on the location and all of those things. Most people get whatever the prison kitchen can provide. We cut to the next day, and Blanche arrives back at the house from going to the airport, but she's without her grandson and is understandably distraught. The ladies don't really seem as worried as I would be if a 14-year-old hadn't arrived at the airport, but these were different times. While Rose twaddles on about the many things she's missed in life, Sophia and Dorothy try to keep Blanche calm. Soon after, David arrives with a police escort. He had hidden in the plane's bathroom, and he was busted in the duty-free shop at the airport in the Bahamas. I love sitcom time, that in the same amount of time that Blanche was waiting for him at the airport, he flew to another country, got caught, flew back, and was taken to the house. And of course, Blanche makes a move at the police officer. Upon meeting David, we get his scuzzy vibe, that he snuck on the plane, lied about it, claims to have wanted to get gifts for the ladies, but no one is buying it, except maybe Blanche. But she's too busy hitting on the officer to really notice David's shady behavior. The whole thing really fits into the 80s, every teen is a punk, that was put out by the boomers. Uh, Wally's Bar, is that a place that comes up uh, again in the future? Because it sounds like... A good time. <laughs> so that's the bar that Blanche mentions to the police officer. I think yeah. she mentions it a couple times. She has throughout the series, there are a couple bars where she's like, oh, this place has, uh, you know, dollar night or ladies night or whatever. Wally's maybe comes back up. But later in the series, we learn that her home base becomes the rusty anchor. Of course. Blanche doesn't bother being upset with David's unconventional arrival. She quickly introduces him to the girls, and he does his best 80s cool kid on TV show shtick. The girls are excited to meet him, but each introduction is met with a smart aleck joke about the women being old. We get a baby of a plot whoopsie here when Rose mentions that she's been to the Bahamas once. David then asks if it was on the Nina, Pinta, or Santa Maria, mocking her old age. But she says it was on a plane. Not just any plane, but a DC-10. A huge plane meant for long-range flights, not the puddle jump it is to the Bahamas from Florida. But if the episode Rose the Prude was her first and only time to the Bahamas, it wasn't by a plane, but by a cruise ship. So which is it, Rose? Hmm. Very interesting. Maybe she's Rose the Liar, yeah. not Rose the Prude. Or she was like, that was, she, she slipped up. 
and she's yeah. thinking about a time like her time in um working for the company. She <laughs> was on a hit. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. Not the Bahamas. I went to Moscow. Yes. <laughs> it's very quick that we realize that David is an ageist little twerp. He wants to go hang out with other teens, so he bounces, leaving the triple BLT and potato salad to rot. Blanche doesn't force him to stay. She really just more asks him when he's going to be home. She doesn't blame the kid either, rather his Yankee father for his rebellious behavior. As Blanche outwardly ponders if she should have given David money to buy food with, Sophia chimes in with her own opinion. She should have given him a smack. This leads to one of the more controversial topics that the girls touch on, corporal punishment. Reporting for duty. (laughs) (laughs) Mommy. As Sophia praises the usefulness of a melon baller when correcting your child's behavior, Blanche is on the opposite side and doesn't believe in hitting children. While not corporal punishment, the conversation has led to Rose recalling a punishment from her childhood when she had to go to the barn to milk Alice. Alice had to sit on a stool after her plowing accident. While Rose claims that Alice gets hooked to the plow, there is still a hint of ambiguity as to if Alice is a woman or cow. We cut to that evening, the first of many Sophia and Dorothy will be spending together, in a scene that I can only describe as being ripped from the headlines. My ma and I are very close. Dorothy and Sophia, all the way. We have been through it all. Talk about it all. Get through it all together. But when Sophia sits on the edge of the bed, files her nails, slaps on her lotion, somehow makes tissues noisy, tweezes the old lady hairs we all get— You know the ones. Not there one day, the next morning it's a six-incher sticking out of your chin, and you're certain you have no true friends because they would have told you it was there while standing next to Dorothy studying before making her way to the bed to complain about Dorothy's noise-making? Well, it's all too real. Just like that, my mom will file her nails, make a weird click with them in her teeth, have a four-hour routine just to go to bed— But at the top of the list are these little hums she makes when she's really focused on doing something. I don't think she knows she does it. They kind of make me crazy. And when those thoughts of mortality sneak in my head sometimes, when I know the days will come, when I will miss her, it's those little noises I know I'm going to miss the most. So I try to not let them make me feel like I want to scream. You know, if you have a mom like that, you get it. I would love to hear any of those mom sounds or routines that your mom or a mother figure does in your life that maybe make you want to scream. So be sure to email us. My mother. Oh, yes. What are yours? My mother is the queen of size. Oh. (sighs) (laughs) And now I am the prince. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the throne you is do mine. Love si- your mom is a sire. Oh, my God. And your dad is a noisemaker. Yeah. Remember last time uh, we were hanging out with him? He was kind of making, like, not yells, but, you know, those little noise you make. And you're like, oh, my God, that's where I get it. Yeah. Whenever I'm surprised or something. Yes. I kind of yelp like a dog a little bit. <laughs> low, not low volume and not like a shriek, but just like a ha. Yeah. A lot. My dad does that. I never realized I got that from him. I'm an old man now. <laughs> I I hear um I hear my mom's so the the time this would always make me the most nuts was getting ready in the morning, grew up in a one bedroom or 
grew up in a one bathroom house, getting ready in the morning. She always had the heater on. So the bathroom Ugh. was 800 degrees and it was her and I trying to get ready for the day, which was always great because it was really special time together and we would talk and whatever. But she'd be so focused on like her mascara and kind of just kind of. Uh, mm, uh, uh. <laughs> and I just would be like, make a noise or don't. And every once in a while now I've caught myself in the last couple months. I've been like. Mm. And I'm just like, oh, it's happening. I have noticed you. I have noticed that a few times. I know that's the noise. Yeah, that's oh it. my god, you have to say it so that's I so stop funny. because I can't turn into my mother. <laughs> oh, I would also like to say that my mother is a wonderful person that I love. <laughs> oh my god, so much, and she's the she's a great mom. But boy, she can sigh. Yeah, this isn't against moms. I mean, no. you watch the scene and you're not oh. hating Sophia. Oh, yeah. But you, if Dorothy picked her up and threw her out the window, you'd be like, it's justified. You, yeah, you got to do it sometimes. <laughs> mom's got to go out the fuck. Oh. <laughs> mom's got to go out the window. <laughs> that should stay with a little beep. Yeah. <laughs> Once in bed, Sophia's age shows with the use of Bengay, Vicks, and Deep Heat across her body for pain and tightness. As they bark at each other to go to sleep, the not-so-tiny Dorothy tosses and rocks the bed as she tries to find a good position. Again, me and my mom. Even as an adult, when we lived together, from time to time, she and I would sneak off to her room, turn on a good true crime show, and maybe take a little nap. But I am far more restless a sleeper than her. I move and kick and toss until I get sleepy and doze, kind of like a puppy. But not her. She lays down. That's it. Many an unexpected snap of, could you just get still, would come at me. In those moments, I should have thought of the Dramamine line for her. Not for nausea, but maybe it would just put her to sleep while I continued to kick and roll. When Sophia is asking Dorothy a bunch of questions as they were getting into bed, Dorothy asked, what is this, the curse of the Catwoman? I've looked for an old movie called that, but there are so many adult films with that title that I can't find it. But... Maybe that was the film being referenced, given Sophia's proclivity towards those types of films. As Sophia makes those throat noises, they both finally find some peace. Dorothy starts reminiscing about seeking comfort in her parents' bed when she was little and having nightmares about being chased and eaten by a bear. Dreaming about a bear has a lot of meanings. One can be that a bear is representative of someone protective in your life. For Dorothy, it could have been Sophia. But to be chased or attacked by a bear could mean you're feeling angry and you're quick to be annoyed or sent into a rage that you're feeling trapped. While being chased by a bear means that maybe you're running out of fear from something troubling you in your real life. Sophia shares how she appreciated how polite Dorothy always was by reenacting her asking to come into bed with a very low voice. My little brother, who's nine years younger than me, got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. Our small, one-bathroom house didn't allow for quiet flushings, especially with my parents' room being connected to the bathroom. So little five-year-old Mac made his way into the bedroom, jostled my mom's shoulder until she was awake to say, Mommy, will it wake you if I flush? The ladies share their memories from what seems like a lifetime ago, and they happily roll over to go to sleep. In that moment, we hear the clanging of a cymbal, the strum of an electric guitar, and other generic rock and roll sounds blaring from the living room. 
The ladies run out of their rooms to examine why such a clatter arose, only to find four young, poorly dressed, and even more poorly hairstyled teen boys. They're blaring the not the exact same, so not copyright infringing version of what I can only assume is War Pigs by Black Sabbath as they slowly, awkwardly jam out while seated and playing air instruments. It looks pretty rad. Blanche goes full foghorn leghorn while inquiring what was going on. David explains with no concern of how bad of a choice it was that he went to get pizza, met these dudes, and brought these strangers back to his grandmother's house. This whole scene is worth it just to get a glimpse of the rat tail being rocked by the guy closest to the kitchen. He has light frosting on his bangs. Well, both of those are inaccurate. Frosting makes it sound well done, like in sync. This was 80s, and frosting was just bleach. And just bleach usually made your hair orange. And they aren't really bangs so much as the front of his curly hair that's just up. So the orangish bangs laid atop his black hair that then led to a bleached, again, mostly orange rat tail that's not only curly, but lands on his shoulders. It's a sight to behold. Hence Dorothy's double take when she spots it. It looks wet. It it's awful. Mm-hmm. Never, never in my life. I lived. We. It looked like a uh, a fresh piece of ribbon candy. <laughs> <laughs> you and I both lived through the rat tail era. Certainly. Never. Even the boy that I love, my first love of my life, he had a rat tail. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I love him so much. But also fantasized about like sitting behind him and cutting that off. It's never looked good, in my opinion. They're gross. And if you have one, get out, get out of it. Get out of it. <laughs> get out of that deal. Clip it. Ponytail, totally different. Yes. A man ponytail, mm-hmm. great. What, yeah. do you, what do you do with that thing? What's it doing? Who's it doing it for? When confronted by the ladies, the teens' ageist and child-hitting jokes continue, even from these strangers that stop by, one of which attempts to steal a crystal apple, a very hot item on the street. Some sort of award. Yeah. So may, oh, maybe, oh, it was an apple. Maybe Dorothy got a teaching award. Mm-hmm. Oh, good deduction. Thank you. It, yeah, that's what we're going to say it is. It's Dorothy's teaching award for substitute teacher excellence success. Of the year. After his friends are given the boot, David loses it. All the frustrations surrounding his parents fighting and ignoring him has come to a head, and the ladies are getting the brunt of it. He makes his way around the living room, posturing and getting in the face of each of the women. When he's called out on his attitude, he gets in Dorothy and Sophia's face and says, You can kiss my attitude, which is swiftly met with a slap to the face from Sophia. This elicits what is maybe the most awkward audience reaction of all time in television. Some people clap, some people gasp, then a few more clap before David runs out to the lanai. Blanche is furious and asks Sophia if hitting and yelling is all Italians know how to do. Not one to be embarrassed or quiet, Sophia responds with, No, we also know how to sing opera and make love. All of which is, well, stereotypically, but also very much for Sophia, very true. Hi, it's me. I'm Jennifer Engler. I'm an associate professor of psychology at York College of Pennsylvania. I am a clinical psychologist and have specialized training in childhood and adolescence, both normal and abnormal, and a background in treating eating disorders. 
as a baseline, what kind of correlation is there between the family issues that David was experiencing with them fighting and him not getting the attention he was looking for and the behaviors he was exhibiting with the girls? So it's really interesting when you think about the relationships that parents have with their children and the reason why having that close attachment is so important through lots of different developmental stages, particularly in adolescence, even though we want to be letting those children have a little bit more space, a little bit more independence and autonomy, parental monitoring is still such a very important element of that relationship. You still want to have that close relationship relationship, but allow them to have a little bit of space to explore so they can start to learn who they are, figure themselves out, but they still have this safe relationship to come back to that provides them with structure, guidance, rules, consequences. All of those things remain very important, even in adolescence. When I was looking back at the episode, it was actually quite important to notice that The parents were very much focused on some of their own difficulties at the time, perhaps even not having the time to be focused or paying attention to or correcting what David was doing at home. And in fact, I think Blanche even said, my mom never gave me any rules. I never gave my daughter any rules. And my daughter hasn't given her son any rules. And so as much as our children don't like rules, they do provide really important structure And they actually make kids and even adolescents, I think, feel safe because they provide guidelines about what is and is not allowed. And without those guidelines, without that framework, I think they start to feel a little bit more chaotic. That made a lot of sense to me to see some of his behavior being untethered, unrestrained. He had never learned that there were consequences for those behaviors before because either the parents didn't have time to consequence him or they just weren't paying attention. And then when he did it with the girls, they were appalled and and they were ready to provide some of those consequences. Before we get into the whole question of corporal punishment, I wanted to touch on the fact that in this episode, Sophia mentions that she uses a melon baller as her weapon of choice, we'll say, when she was reprimanding her kids. Is there any kind of difference in the lens we're looking through between using something, a stick, a belt, a melon baller, and using your hands? like Sophia did when she slapped David? Gosh, I hadn't even thought about that. I, I, I wouldn't even know where to start with, a, with an answer. I think that any type of physical violence is physical violence. I don't know if I would, if I would distinguish between what the implement was, whether it was a body part or a, another object. In the almost 40 years since this episode has aired, Obviously, a lot has changed, especially how we view youth and behaviors and reaction to those behaviors. How far have we come as far as understanding the long-term effects of corporal punishment? It's a really interesting question because I think that the general assumption is physical punishment is bad. We shouldn't do it. And I think that that's a lot of what maybe some of the later generations feel. There's a lot more talking and a lot more negotiating. And sometimes people might say we've even gone too far in the opposite direction where there's there's no discipline. But what's really interesting is um, the jury is still out on whether there is 
true causal evidence that spanking or physical punishment, corporal punishment causes these negative outcomes. There's so many other variables. So the jury is still out. There are other ways of consequencing and disciplining behavior that do not come with the same potential negative outcomes that we would see with corporal punishment. So there's nothing good that's going to come out of corporal punishment that you can't do or can't find with another type of discipline. But there is the possibility that it could be associated with some negative outcomes. And so I think that the general assumption is, then why go there? Why not just use something else that we know isn't going to cause or relate to these negative consequences down the road? And so we do know that there are a lot of negative outcomes that could be associated with corporal punishment, with physical punishment, that you just don't see with more explaining, discussions, taking timeouts. You made a really good point there. I'm curious what that line in the sand is when something goes from corporal punishment to actual abuse. That's a really good question. And so um, when, when we're thinking about physical abuse, what's important is to understand how that's defined. So what does physical abuse mean? And if we're looking at a definition of physical abuse, it, it means intentionally trying to injure or cause trauma. So there's an intention of trying to hurt. If we look at that definition, I suppose we could suggest that corporal punishment is, is not necessarily that. I don't think that parents are intending to cause pain or trauma in, in those instances, but I do think we run a real risk of going down that slippery slope where my providing discipline becomes increasingly violent and I become more and more out of control and regardless of what the state's definition of physical abuse is, and so you should check state to state, the definitions may vary slightly, that line may become much grayer over time. And so you may have not intended to hurt them the first time, But once you learned that what you did did hurt them, well, it's a lot harder to argue that what you did is not physical abuse because you were aware of the trauma that it caused. You're aware of the pain that it caused. And so the ability to argue it wasn't my intention is probably going to be much harder to sell uh, if this becomes a chronic issue. And that slippery slope, I think, is so important to think about because I don't think any parent envisions themselves as abusing their child. I don't think anyone thinks that that's what the plan is. But but once you take that first step and, and you start engaging in, you know, even grabbing a child too tightly by the arm, well, what's the next thing of yanking them? And then you begin to go down this road and, and we know that bad behaviors are, are very slowly developing over time. We don't start from point A and get all the way to point B overnight. It, it gradually evolves. It's not related to thinking about uh, child abuse, but I go back to Stanley Milgram's study on obedience, but it's when he had his participants think that they were electrocuting uh, a learner in another room, and there was a panel of uh, a shock, and, and they went from zero to triple XX in terms of voltage. They didn't go right to triple XX. They had to increase over time. And eventually you get far enough along that it becomes harder to stop. And and I think about that when it comes to these types of situations as well. 
once you've crossed a line, it becomes easier and easier to cross the next line. Like in this case with Sophia, she's actually having an emotional response and reacting to David's behaviors, not stepping back to say his behaviors were ABC, therefore the consequences are XYZ. She's training herself, or at least showing that she has trained herself, to just respond in that moment, not to step back and problem solve with the kid. And I think reactionary is a great way to distinguish uh, corporal punishment from other types of discipline because it's reactionary and it's quicker, right? If you want to get a kid to quickly stop doing what they're doing and to stop, pay attention, get their attention, doing something that is aggressive is a very quick and effective way to make it happen. But it comes with consequences, right? It comes with possible consequences. It is much more time consuming and um, requires a lot of patience and a lot of self-control to not react, to take a moment and to have that conversation and offer the opportunity for a learning experience. And the reality is oftentimes parents either don't have or don't feel like they have the skills or the time to, to sit back and do that more time consuming less reactive uh, approach. While slapping a kid across the face might feel like the quick, easy fix, for anyone that has a child that's maybe theirs, maybe not, that's showing behaviors similar to David, what are some of those things that maybe take more time to invest now but give you more benefit in the long term that they could start doing? Sometimes you have a child who is just a very difficult child and they're pulling for all of these responses from the parents and and the parents are doing their very best to not do it. But when you have a very difficult child, it's hard for even the best parent to do their best in any given situation. And so then if they are having trouble, then that feeds on the child, which feeds on the parent. And so we have to understand that the influence can go both ways. Those parents can be impacting the child the child could be impacting those parents. So I also want to just acknowledge that sometimes parents are doing the very best they can in a very difficult situation. And I think it's important to understand that it's okay for parents to say, I'm at a loss. I I don't know what to do here. This this kid is out of control and this is beyond my skill set. No one is trained on how to be a parent. No one gets a manual. We all just sort of do the best we can with sometimes the parenting that we receive, that's our model. And if some of us were raised with parenting approaches that may or may not have been that effective, we may be at a loss for how to handle that in our own children. And so I think it's really important that we we help those parents not feel embarrassed or ashamed to say that they don't know what to do, that that's okay, that's an okay place to be, and that they're probably in really good company. It's just that people don't admit that. Uh, and it would just be so much better if people would just acknowledge, yeah, we're just, we're just faking this. We don't really know what we're doing. We got lucky. Uh, it would be so much better. And, and we would just feel so much more validated. And so for those parents, I just want them to know that I see you. I get it. It's okay. And there are resources out there for you. If you would like some help, not even necessarily for your kid, let's go ahead and get you strengthened so that you feel like you're ready to go into battle, right? You're prepared with all of the skills that you need to handle this really difficult situation. 
The other thing that I would say is David wasn't built in a day, right? So David's behavior didn't start like that. David's behavior developed like that over time. I think that's a really important message as well is don't wait for it to get that bad. What you would want to try and start doing is, is helping those children understand as early as possible what those limits are and that they're are limits that you expect them to work within and that if they don't, that there's gonna be consequences. It doesn't mean that they have to be hurt. It doesn't mean that it's the end of the world, but it means that there will be consequences for their behavior. And uh, one of the things that we know from the attachment literature is that the strongest parent-child attachments come from relationships where there is both warmth and boundaries, warmth and control. We want parents who can be warm and loving and supportive and nurturing. But when the kid breaks the rules, you point it out and, and, and you allow there to be those consequences. And so that's one of the most important things is just being predictable, being consistent, setting those consequences. And I would say doing that as early as possible so that those children know what to expect down the road. If a child is, is really pushing your buttons, uh, they're, they're testing, they're seeing if you really are a safe person. And um, so I sometimes think about that in, in terms of being a teacher, in terms of being around children that are not my own son, they're trying to, they're trying to feel me out. They're trying to figure me out. And so if I cannot respond the way everyone else has, I might be providing them with a restorative experience. So one of the things when you're thinking about if a child has done something that you're disappointed in or they've broken a rule or they have um, behaved in an unsafe or illegal way, obviously you don't want them to do that thing. One of the things that I thought about is how the way that we handle that can, can really impact how they or why they choose or don't choose to make those decisions in the future. If my child misbehaves and they get slapped for doing that, well, they're going to avoid doing that thing in the future so that they don't get hit. But they've never had the opportunity to think through, why shouldn't I do that? And so if we can slow down a little bit, let's talk a little bit about what happened and, and why that may have not been the best choice. Then we can start to get them to start practicing some of that reasoning that hopefully in the future, when they have the opportunity to make a terrible decision, they might not do it, not because they're afraid of getting slapped, but because we've helped them practice understanding why that's not the right choice. And by doing that, we're helping them to develop a more sophisticated moral reasoning. And that does take time. It takes time out of a parent's schedule. It takes time out of a busy day. And so it, it can be hard and time consuming to do that. But that's one of the benefits that could come from that is that you're allowing them to develop a, a stronger, more sophisticated way of, of thinking through moral dilemmas. 
While you were explaining that, the idea of a traffic ticket came to mind. I could get pulled over and get a ticket for 100 bucks and pay it and drive off, and that's my slap on the wrist, but I didn't really learn a lesson there. If I have to go to traffic court, then I'm going to have to spend the day taking my time, but also learning and seeing what my consequences could be so that next time I'm going to speed, it's not, oh, I don't want to deal with losing the 100 bucks. It's, oh, I don't want to crash my car and kill somebody. Exactly, exactly. Or think about an adolescent who comes home and they've been drinking and their parents are mad and they just ground them. But there's no conversation about why this scares the parents so much, what the possible consequences could have been, and in trying to understand what the child was looking for and engaging in those behaviors. What was the experience like? Trying to get into why they made that decision and helping them see those possible consequences. Exactly. It's a different, it's a different way of thinking through why I don't want to do that again in the future. With the drinking example, that again just keeps it a mystery. Instead of saying alcohol might damage your body or you might make poor choices, it's just this forbidden fruit, which could lead to even more desire to want to do it. Right, right. And isn't, I mean, there is a part of adolescence where one of the best things is getting your parents all worked up, right? So you don't want to do that. Like you don't want to be overly reactive. One of the reasons why this idea of corporal punishment is so problematic is the modeling of how to handle difficult situations. And what that parent is modeling is that it's okay to be out of control it is okay to be reactive. It is okay to use violence to solve problems. And that is not the message that you would want to be communicating to your child, but that is some of the byproduct that comes along with that physical corporal punishment. So again, even if we don't have research that says, absolutely, this kind of punishment leads to all of these dire consequences, we know that there are these byproducts that could be avoided. If I am reactive, if I am unhinged, if if I am modeling that type of behavior, I'm teaching my child something in that moment. I am teaching them how to handle similar situations in the future. And so it's, it is highly likely why we oftentimes see some of this intergenerational transmission of these types of parenting practices or of abusive behaviors. It's what they've learned. It's what they know. And it's going to be their most automatic response because it's the most familiar and practiced. We see that in this episode, right? It's, it's sort of the opposite because it's an intergenerational transmission of a laissez-faire parenting attitude. Blanche's mom never made her do any chores. Blanche never made her daughter do any chores. The daughter never held her son accountable. And you see Blanche saying, oh my God, did I do this? Is this my fault? I should have. I should have been firmer. So these parenting styles can be passed down over generations as well. Thanks for stopping by, Dr. Engler. Did you ever have a moment where someone that wasn't your mom or dad smacked you or spanked you or some no. corporal punishment? I, I never, I was not a troublemaker. Well. And so I never, no, I've only been hit. I think I've been punished in that way twice. Once when I was like two when I ran across the street. Oh, yeah. And my dad spanked my juicy little honey. <laughs> <laughs> and then once uh, when I was like 10 or 11, I had a couple of friends over and I was all riled up and probably jacked up on sugar. And I like 
my mom was trying to get me to do something and I was just like in her face like yeah, something yeah, yeah, yeah. and she like oh. slapped me a little bit of course you know me you cried I cried the hardest I've ever cried <laughs> in my life <laughs> and and then uh I wouldn't say it like set me straight because that just wasn't how I was behaving is just not what I ever did right. ever before or ever I just like one anomaly uh and that was it I was spanked only a handful of times. Uh, I did the running as well, but I didn't get spanked for that. I did get a leash for quite some time, <laughs> but I did get spanked. It was one of the last times I was ever spanked as a child, and it was my aunt. And mm. it was kind of quite the th- It was kind of like this where that was something she did. And I can't remember. I think my cousin and I just not even in that big of trouble, but just something you know, being little pains in the butt. Set a fire. Yeah. <laughs> and we were, yeah, we were being rambunctious or something. And my cousin got sent to his room and then I got spanked by my aunt and it was so jarring. I was probably seven or eight and it was like, wait, that's, that's a thing for my parents. That's not you, but you're my aunt and I see you all the time. So it's kind of okay. Cause you're the boss. It was very bizarre. And then I remember my mom and her like go walking away and talking extensively that's the aunt I haven't seen or talked to in about 30 years. So <laughs> that was sort of the beginning of the end, I think. That I would, I, I should ask my parents what they thought of that, having that boundary crossed. It's one thing to parent someone else's kid, but to spank someone else's kid is like, whoa. Yeah. After the hoodlums are kicked out, David and Blanche talk on the lanai about how upset he is, not just from the slap, but from his living situation in general. Soon after, we join the girls in the kitchen to talk about what needs to be done with David. Rose talks about all of her chores on the farm in St. Olaf, feeding, cleaning, caring for the animals, animals like her one-eyed pig. Dorothy goes into the list she had as chores, which goes on and on, leading Blanche to ask if she had gone to a military school. Sophia gladly pops in with, no, she lived with me. I was eternally asked to clean my room. Never did it. Yeah. Um, did the dishwasher thing. I think most kids did this where it was like, go empty, go fill the dishwasher. And then you do it like you've never held a bowl before. Yes. And then my mom is uh, a, a little bit particular about things. And it was like, oh, forget it. Just let me do it. That's nice. And I really use that to my advantage. That's good. That's smart. I feel like I'm in a confessional right now. I bet you still I could mean, use that. I mean, laundry. Everything. It was like, I know she wants it done specifically. I don't want to do it. If I half-ass it, she'll be so pissed. She'll just do it. Put the laundry in the dishwasher, the dishes in the laundry, <laughs> washing machine. Oh. And I always felt like, am I a supervillain? Because she never caught on to it. And it was like, no, she just didn't want to deal with my dumb ass. Yeah. <laughs> As someone that worked with kids for 13 years, I can say Dorothy, the teacher, is right. Children need and thrive in structure. Blanche sees that the lack of structure she raised her children with has led to David's behavior, but she quickly realizes that the way she raised her kids came from how she was raised, so all in all, it's obviously her own mother's fault. Later in the evening, we're in the dark living room looking at the hallway when a dark figure starts coming down it. Dorothy comes out of the kitchen at the same time and reveals that the mystery figure is David. 
Just like when she learned the truth with Dr. Clayton, Dorothy calmly approaches the situation. She doesn't scream at him for trying to run away. She talks and most importantly, listens and validates his experience and frustrations. In some top-notch problem solving, Dorothy lets David talk about how there are too many chores. And while he doesn't mind some of them, he has a problem with the girly stuff like vacuuming. Dorothy is a feminist through and through. But she recognizes that this isn't a teachable moment about sexism. It's an opportunity for the kiddo to have their needs met. This is a beautiful thing to watch, especially for anyone that works in conflict resolution. After making an agreement, David comes around. No more strangers over, no more nights out. He has the structure, attention, and love he's been seeking from his parents. As the two weeks comes to an end, the new family unit is having a toast on the lanai to celebrate how well David has been doing, and of course, that Dorothy aced her French finale. Is that how you'd say it? Finale. Fin? Finale? I don't speak French. She got an A on her French final. Blanche celebrated that old dogs can learn new tricks, while Sophia toasts to Blanche's knowledge of tricks. Dorothy appreciates the support and shows off her French skills with a merci beaucoup. Rose is impressed, while Sophia, never one to let her own daughter even have a moment, reminds the girls that something actually impressive was when Dr. Jane Goodall, the world-renowned primatologist, taught a monkey how to Roomba. While Dr. Goodall did teach primates many impressive things like sign language, she never formally danced with one. After having such a good time, David basically invites himself to live with the girls. Rose, Sophia, and Dorothy take it as a compliment, a testament to how much he enjoyed his time with them, but they're also scared that he's serious. They're grandmothers, not mothers to a teenager. Blanche, however, sees it as an opportunity to correct her mistakes in how she raised her own children, a redo of sorts, to prove she can be a good mom. She even goes so far as to call her daughter that is on vacation to give her an ultimatum. Shape up and treat your kid right, or he's coming to live with me. Although she starts with a, by the way, I'm keeping your kid, basically the opposite ability to problem solve as Dorothy. If Blanche had kept David, though, his parents could have pretty easily pressed kidnapping charges on her, and then they'd be in a whole different mess. When she gets off the phone, the girls compliment her standing her ground and threatening with such a good bluff. Blanche assures them, it ain't no bluff. This moment begs the question, what the hell time is it? The ladies are in Florida. It's dark out. When Blanche finishes talking on the phone, she says Janet, her daughter, has to go wake the Yankee, Michael, her husband. Depending on the time of year, Florida to Hawaii is a five- or six-hour difference. Are they celebrating at midnight and the happy couple is taking a nap at 6 p.m.? Is it 10 p.m. there and 4 p.m. in Hawaii? Is it actually bedtime in Hawaii, maybe 10 p.m., and the gang is partying at 4 a.m.? Who knows? All options sound pretty good, though. The next day, David is off to Hawaii. Blanche's family has some serious therapeutic work to do here. You have parents that are fighting constantly, a child showing negative attention-seeking behaviors, and now they're just going to finish out the vacation together. Which begs yet another question. Was David there the two weeks and was going to join his parents for another few days? I mean, he'll need many, many hours just to get to Hawaii. Do his parents have jobs? There wasn't really a work-from-home option in 1985, so how are they getting all this time off? 
but at least they're trying, as a family, to work through their issues and hopefully hear each other out. As David goes to leave, he says his goodbyes to each lady, Blanche reminding him to try and make things work with his folks, Dorothy making sure he knows he can come back anytime, Rose giving an awkward hug because they never really had time together except to talk about her disabled farm animals, and Sophia. Well, he fake punches her shoulder before she fake slaps his cheek and then pinches it, showing that they've made amends. David leaves and Blanche is emotional but appreciative to her friends for not only helping with him but offering for him to come back if he ever needs to. Spoiler alert, he never needs to come back and we don't hear from or see him again. The ladies sit around the living room, coming down from all the excitement. All Sophia cares about is getting Dorothy's snoring butt out of her bed. While as a TV show episode, this one feels a little lost without a stronger secondary plot, it hits the notes of a very special episode in a non-cheesy way. It was 1985, and they were talking about corporal punishment, structure for kids, and validating the typical punk. Two of the ladies were put in an unwanted sleeping situation. Blanche was at her wit's end as to what to do with her grandson. They were all bothered by his antics and disrespect, yet there was never a moment of complaint from the other girls. They all just got it. Blanche wasn't running around apologizing for his every move. She instead turned to her girls to seek their advice and support. They all offered help in some fashion, and in coming together as a patient, loving team, they were able to help young David to not only get his behavior together, but to show him that his feelings mattered and he too had the right to be in a happy family, not just his parents. It takes a village to raise a child, and it took these girls to make that kid golden. Until next time, keep the melon baller in the drawer, and thank you for being a friend. Golden goodies. If you're looking for something to wear to pride that says, I love the Golden Girls, yet I am strong and tough like a football player, then look no further. Madonna Shade is here. Seen on such celebrities as Alaska from RuPaul's Drag Race, Madonna Shade's Golden Girls jerseys are perfect for everyone. With pops of color, metallic prints of each gal's face on the front, custom backs with their last names and appropriate numbers, like 69 for Blanche, on the back, you will be the talk of the town or field when you wear them with or without underwear. Find Madonna Shades, Madonna-inspired, male genitalia-inspired, some of my favorite swear word-inspired, and Golden Girls-inspired attire at etsy.com shop slash Madonna Shade. Today's love letter comes from my dear friend, Yara. The first memory I have of Golden Girls is watching part of an episode with my grandma, Ruth. Of course, I was too young to understand the jokes or the storyline, but what I do remember is Blanche Devereaux. She was so glamorous in her sequined gown and jewelry. She was the epitome of everything I wanted to be when I was a grown-up. As an adult watching Golden Girls, I still love Blanche's flamboyant, glamorous style and personality, but now I can appreciate her character as well. Despite her flaws, Blanche is fiercely loyal to her friends, self-confident, and comfortable in her sexuality. And as a self-proclaimed rose, I could definitely take a few notes from Blanche's book. First on my list, to wear all the sequins once this damn pandemic is over. P.S. Can we talk about the gay roommate? I wanted more episodes with him. What the hell happened? P.S.S. Can we also talk about how they were supposed to be in their 50s? Thanks so much, Yara. And if you would like your love letter read on air, please email it to me at alwaysbemysisters at gmail.com. 
His teenage... Sh- Excuse me? Who's that? <laughs> Is shenanigans one of the best words? It's one of my favorites. It's a great one. And you know, it's female empowered. Shenanigans. Yeah. Yeah, not him-nanigans. Like, no him-nanigans. She-nanigans. We've had enough him-nanigans. It's time for her-nanigans. <laughs> right, ladies? <laughs> Are we sure? I feel pretty certain about okay. that. Um, Look it up. I oh, am. Okay. Talk to me like that. <laughs> there was a silent please at the beginning of that. <laughs> <laughs> is a silly image. Is the end of that sentence? <laughs> it's, it's pretty silly. You silly little goose. <laughs> Get back to business. Stop being so silly. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Hong Kong. Upsettingly mad about that. What are your last words? I didn't get spaghettios. Yeah. I got spaghetti. Like he holds a grudge. <laughs> uh, I I was spanked a couple times and uh, a couple nights ago. <laughs> <laughs> she talks and Morrison Morrison Porsonly call the police. Oh my God, Morse <laughs> Morrison Porsonly Morrison Porsonly. That's embarrassing. <laughs> We should have put it at the end. Mm. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always...